Our next guest tonight works as a file clerk at a Cleveland hospital. He also writes comic books which deal with his day-to-day -day pains and pleasures, and this is an anthology of the nine of those comics. It's entitled American Splendor. From off the streets of Cleveland, folks, please say hello to Harvey Picar. Harvey, tonight. Welcome to Now Playing's review of American Splendor. If <laughs> everyone camera. in America could see this film, it's the same as the I Have a Dream speech, you know? Part of our DC Comics retrospective series. Harvey Picar. That doesn't sound like a superhero to me. Hosted by Arnie. Everyone in my family has some sort of degenerative illness. Jacob. You should see his comics on. They're out of sight. Yeah? Hey, I'm at the comics myself. And Stuart. You're the embodiment of the American dream. This podcast will contain detailed spoilers and harsh language. Well, sort of, yeah, but you know, there's no idealized shit. You know, there's no phony bullshit. It's the real thing, man. Listener discretion is advised. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah? I mean, it's certainly not your Hollywood happy ending, but it's pretty truthful. Which is rare these days. Yeah. Today we're discussing American Splendor, starring... Paul Giamatti, Hope Davis, Judah Freelander, James Urbaniak, Harvey Picar, Joyce Brabner, Toby Radolf, and the first film appearance of Josh Hutcherson. Who? He is? Yes, he is in this. Oh, who is that? Hunger Games, PETA. Oh, wow, okay. He, he was the kid dressed as Robin in the very first scene. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. Directed by Sherry Springer-Berman and Robert Pulcini. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and look, before we get started with any of this, you might as well know off the bat, I had a vasectomy. Stuart and Ellie! <laughs> and this is the host that looks somewhere between a younger Brando and a hairy ape, Jacob. You know, I lose my voice usually because I'm screaming I have to watch another <laughs> comic book movie, but I magically find myself excited to be talking DC this week. <laughs> That's because it's only barely DC. <laughs> yeah, there, many years after this film, Vertigo, which is an imprint of DC, did publish like eight issues of American Splendor. I think it's probably available still as a collected trade paperback called A Day Late and a Dollar Short. They did another collected edition, too. Vertigo's done a couple of them, but yeah. They might have done some reprints then, yeah. But I know they did some original stuff after the movie came out that Picard had not published before. So this is about as DC as... When are we getting to Conan the Barbarian again? <laughs> it's as DC as Tank Girl, yeah. I mean... Do you want to go there? I mean, you gotta ask yourself if you're willing to do it. Touche, sir. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Think long and hard about that second Conan movie and then whatever that remake was. Here's the thing. I've never seen any of them, so I'd be the newbie. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. But I'm not the newbie to American Splendor. This is a movie that I watched because Jacob recommended it. If you think that we sit here and just review movies off air... We actually listened to each other's recommendations. And Jacob, <laughs> you were hosting a podcast that I was producing called Comic Apocalypse, and you were talking about this Harvey P. Carr and this American Splendor. And I'm like, well, if Jacob thinks so highly of it, I gotta see it. I actually Netflixed it immediately, watched it, and I'm probably seeing it my third or fourth time for this review now. 
Yeah, I, I didn't just talk about America's Plan. I actually interviewed Harvey Picar for that show. And I got the idea from one of those Vertigo comics. He had a story about how people just drop by his house sometimes because he'd publish his address and phone number. So I'm like, Google his phone number and I'll call him up and see if he'll do an interview. And he did. So I got to talk to him for a couple of hours. It, it was a uh, one of the highlights of my life. It, this is someone... Not because of the comics. I found out about him because of this film. Like, I had heard of American Splendor. I just had never read it. And then I saw this film. After it came out on DVD, I think I saw a review on Ebert and Roper at the time. And they, the stuff they showed, the way they talked about it really excited me. So I'm like, oh, I want to see this. And it finally came out on video. I checked it out and just went immediately and bought all like any P-Car comic that I could find. And just read them up. And it, it's had a big impact on me. Like, I started doing my own comics after that. I'm like, look, if, if this guy could do it at 40 or whatever, I could start trying this out and, and see if it goes anywhere. It does have that hell if he can do it kind of attitude, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. I mean, I, th I think that's kind of the appeal of Harvey P. Carr. Like, we'll, we'll talk about it. And this is a biopic. And we've had our... Mostly downs with biopics. Like, I, I feel it's like a genre that's really hard to pull off because it is so formulaic. It, it is so behind the music, like rise to fame, you do a bunch of drugs, don't become popular, and then you go to rehab and you're popular again. Like, I feel like that is the biopic formula. Which is why I love Wolf of Wall Street. It's the best one we've done because it breaks that formula. Because <laughs> it's just all drugs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's an extreme one. But yeah, I agree. We're outside our realm of comfort. Not mine. I, this was a movie that I saw just independently. I had heard it was good. It was made by people that I trusted and I remember liking. I saw it once, but it never occurred to me that we would ever tie it into anything that we do here at Now Playing. I, I guess I didn't realize that it had any association with DC that we could jump on. To me, this was about an independent comic book creator. And indeed it is. It mostly is. I, he's more affiliated with Robert Crumb, who was someone I was very familiar with, uh, who was in a documentary a few years before this movie. I really loved Crumb. If you haven't seen that one, highly recommended that as well. Very dark, yes. <laughs> that that Crumb documentary. Uh, a, a strange fellow, a strange family, him and his brothers. Mm, but the Yeah, the brothers. Ooh. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he self-published these comics for a while. Eventually, like, Dark Horse picked him up. When I interviewed him, he talked about Dark Horse, and it almost sounded like a pity fuck. It's just like, yeah, you're this, like, really critically acclaimed comic book writer. We'll put out some comics. We're really not going to promote them or anything. But, like, the, the editor felt like they should get put out, so they just did it. And he's done a lot of stuff outside of comics, too. Like, I think that's where he's most well-known, but he's in the jazz circles. He's a big jazz critic. He's written about other things, uh, very political things, just outside of his own life. And that comes through in this documentary, in his story, but it's not necessarily the focal point. I think that, yes, this is, a, on one level, a very traditional how someone came to be a celebrity, a superhero, a an extraordinary individual. But the joke of this one is it's about a file clerk who becomes an independent comic book publisher, writer, and maybe that is too small for films? What do you think? Are you cool with watching a movie about people that have boring day jobs and see life as miserable and drudgery and don't get covered in radioactive fluid and become extraordinary? That may not seem like my genre, but I'll tell you that if it's done well, I absolutely love that kind of thing. And before we even get into it, I think what American Splendor has going for it is a healthy dose of comedy. If you're going to entertain me and tell me a great story about an everyman in a funny way or in a inspiring way, and I think this is both, 
then yeah, I'm down with it. I seek out this kind of film, but so often they're just done that I find myself annoyed. Yeah, I mean, I have no problem with this genre. I, I Especially, man, we've done so much superhero stuff. Yeah, something quieter. I mean, look, this was one of my picks for Now Underrated, an early pick, but it actually got a big Oscar nomination, so we decided maybe it's not, at least critically, not so underrated. Maybe with comic book crowds it's underrated, but with the critics... And with the Academy, it got a Best Adapted Screenplay. And I do feel like it was big for the star, Paul Giamatti. This was a, one of the movies that really launched him into becoming, I guess he's a leading man, or at least a little bit above being just a background character actor. He's the rhino! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I'm trying to think of what Giamatti did before this. Like, wasn't he like Agent Cody Banks? He was the bad. It was like Disney films. He was always like the villain because he has that great cocked eyebrow thing that he could do. But because of this film, I became a Giamatti fan. Like when Sideways came out in 2004, I'm like, I want to see that because Paul Giamatti's in it. What's funny is I got into Paul Giamatti because of uh, Howard Stern's Private Parts. That's the film that I first paid attention to him. He'd done some stuff I'd seen before it, but that film got my attention for him. And I was also a Giamatti fan, is why I saw Sideways in theaters. Yeah, Sideways would come later. I think that came out of this. But he had done, yeah, two things. He was either the wacky guy in the broad comedy, like Big Mama's House, or he was, yeah, sort of the annoying stoogy suit in movies like, yeah, Private Parts, Man on the Moon. Uh, He did a Todd Solondz movie as well called Storytelling. He had been working in independent films, but I feel like American Splendor really introduced us to Paul Giamatti in a big way it's a perfect match so this this feels like the prequel to sideways in many ways <laughs> and guess what it almost wasn't paul giamatti like when i interviewed p he said the two best things for his career was one being friends with robert crumb and getting that instant credibility that comes with robert crumb and two this movie his comics weren't selling until this movie came out and, and this was a big boost i'm sure it's nice to get that check to option you know, the story and as well, whatever royalties and all that. But American Splendor, people have been trying to make this into a film or something since the 80s. Like Rob Schneider at one point was trying to get the rights and working wow. with P-Car. Yeah. You can't, and P-Car, <laughs> like with the DVD, it comes with a little comic called My Movie Year that Harvey P-Car wrote. And he talks about it. He's like, ah, it was going to be some sitcom-y thing. And yeah, I'm sure it would have been funny. But then Ted Hope, the producer of this film, got in touch with them. And he's like, you know what? I like Ted Hope's idea better for the American Splendor property than what Rob Schneider is trying to sell me. But yeah, just imagine Rob Schneider as Harvey Picar trying to do sketch comedy here. Yeah, that actually wouldn't be a stretch. I think that that's up his alley. Rob Schneider can do more than the stoner friend of Adam Sandler. He's just never given an opportunity. I've never seen it. (laughs) Yeah, that's putting faith where I'm not certain it will pay you back. But I agree, if he has the chops, this would have been a good project to show he can go beyond the broad comedy to do something else. It's in his wheelhouse if he has the skills to do the more dramatic stuff that this movie goes to. It is, I would say, a darker comedy here. It really reminds me, honestly, of Woody Allen. I'm a big Woody Allen fan. I've seen most of his films with the jazz, the curmudgeon, the older guy, the pessimistic outlook on life, the dark humor. This feels very much like you could cast Woody Allen in this part as well. And yet what's so interesting, yeah, I I see that Woody Allen, but this isn't just a straight dark comedy. It's also, what, a documentary at times? Like, they really mess with the format in this film. 
I think that was another big thing that was happening. Paul Giamatti was starting to happen at the beginning of the year. There was a whole series about the Robert Cum documentary and Ghost World got adapted. Independent comics were becoming movies. And I do feel that, yeah, postmodern storytelling where we just sort of jump outside of the characters and the idea that sometimes you're seeing the real Picard and sometimes you're seeing the actor play Picard and sometimes you're seeing both of them in the same scene. Or you're seeing animated cartoons as Picard. Yeah, I, I think that kind of stuff was showing more commercial viability at the turn of the century. I, I feel like more people were hip to this kind of vibe and and it just had a marketplace in 2003 that... Yeah, if you put this out right after Tim Burton's Batman, I don't think anybody would have wanted to see it. But yeah, I I think that we were ready for this kind of movie at 2002-2003. That said, I mean, I was following Giamatti, but I didn't hear of this movie until Jacob brought it up to me, I think around 2007. So while it even had the Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay... It flew under my radar. It was Harvey Picar and Jacob's interview that grabbed my attention for it. Yeah, I did hear that interview. It was a good interview. Yeah, I was just excited that Harvey did not disappoint. He lived up to his reputation. And if you listen to that interview, I, I'm kind of scared to even bring it up. Like, I apologize for the question beforehand. And I'm just like, oh, in this one graphic novel you did, you did this thing that didn't, you know, why did you do this? He ended up calling me back after that interview, and I was gone. He leaves a message. He's like, I, I, I need to talk to you again. There's something you said that's just been bothering me. And so I <laughs> called him back, and it was like another like 45 minutes, like where he's like, "What were you saying? Like, what, what did you like?" And like, I, wow. I, I like just went off. You got under his skin. I, I yeah. don't think that's hard to do, judging no. by his work and his comics and his persona. But congratulations. Yeah, I'm just surprised that nobody like me was able to get under his skin. Yeah, all the interviews I've ever done i've never gotten to somebody that way congratulations jacob that's awesome (laughs) well i think we need to tell people a little bit more about picard in a plot summary and we can get into this movie arnie you got it this is a series of vignettes strung together i'm not gonna waste anybody's time with a plot summary i'm gonna tell you what the movie's kind of about and then we're gonna talk through the individual things that happened But American Splendor follows the life of Harvey Picar, as played by Paul Giamatti, or sometimes as played by Harvey Picar. And Harvey is a file clerk at a VA hospital, but his friendship with cartoonist Robert Crumb inspires him to write an autobiographical comic book. So we watch as Harvey gets his first comic published, and through that comic, it leads him to meet and marry his third wife. He goes on David Letterman, he adopts a foster daughter, and he adapts the trials and tribulations of his daily life, including his wife's bout with depression and his own mundane job, into stories for the comic. He also has a cancer scare with lymphoma, but it's cured after a year of treatments, and the film ends with the real Harvey Picar celebrating his retirement from the VA as credits roll. I know you comic book fans are just chomping at the bit to get to this. <laughs> Look, it opens up with the Justice League. 
What are you complaining about? It does. It does. Yeah. A perfect beginning. I got to say, this set the tone, the way to start this movie out, because it is episodic, as Arnie brings up, you could have started it almost anywhere. They picked the right entry point. It is 1950 on Halloween, and every other kid has dressed up to be a superhero from a comic book, and Harvey (laughs) is just Harvey begging for candy, gets discouraged, screw this, and walks away in disgust. It's perfect. I was so sad on the commentary. They got Harvey and his family and the director's writer, Paul Giamatti. This story is made up, but it is such a perfect intro, like, to set you up, like, oh, we're going to go see this comic book movie, like, this is going to set your expectations right away, like, you see the Justice League as kids sitting there, and Harvey's, like, dressed himself, who are you? I'm, I'm just me, like, this. it's the kid from Elf, I don't know his name, but, you know, he's just this young Harvey P. Carr, and, you know, he gets frustrated because he doesn't want to be a superhero, and that's, that's going to be a theme throughout this, like, he grew up with comics, but he's going to reject those superhero comics so he throws his bag down he's gonna walk off and the jazz is gonna play and we're gonna see harvey grow up as he walks around the streets of cleveland yeah and they start it off right yeah that that theme of rejecting superhero comics is plays throughout this is a well-written story it it didn't need to have an oscar nomination for me to understand that it just because you're dealing with a comic book series which i picked up i've thumbed through but they basically feel very episodic with very little structure in between vignettes it would be hard to adapt this no if you read american splendor like even if you bought it in a single issue the stories don't go together to tell a bigger story they're two-page stories eight-page stories and what's interesting about picard because he's so interested with the quotidian life a word i did not know when i was interviewing him and he kept using i'm like oh crap what is he saying i don't know what (laughs) How am I supposed to follow up that statement? I don't know what quotidian means. I'm very familiar with it now. But yeah, those comics, he always ends at the weirdest points. I remember I'd I'd finish a story and I'm like, wait, where's the rest of it? Like, he doesn't want to get to catharsis. He he doesn't want to get to resolution. Like, he really wants to drive. Like, this is just mundane life. And yeah, how do you adapt that into a movie where you, you are getting rid of all those things that you see in a typical Hollywood movie? But Jacob, at the beginning, it says that this is adapting two specific, what, arcs or titles from American Splendor? Well, there's no arcs. Now, they did Arc Cancer Year. That was an original graphic novel that Harvey and Joyce worked on together as he was going through cancer. So that came out as a graphic novel. So they they adapt some of that. But the rest, they just took one of the anthologies and they're just taking stories from it. Like, you read those comics, you're not going to get a straightforward story. It's going to jump all over his life. There's going to be a story about him in his 20s, a story about him in his 50s, a story about him in his 30s. Like, it goes all over the place. And sometimes he's not the focal character. There's just co-workers that are just making life observations. You know what it honestly felt like? It felt like Peanuts where all the kids had grown up and, you know, just gotten disappointed and disillusioned in life. And <laughs> but, but it has that, like, you know, arg, I got a rock kind of quality. Yes. <laughs> you know, it just sort of ends with kites and trees and just moments of quiet disappointment. And so to do that in a movie, it would get mundane to literally adapt that and just two-minute you know, that's a web series. That is not a feature film. What they have chosen to do is construct this almost like a documentary. They interrupt the flow quite often to have conversations with the real Picard, and then you will see these little moments play out something that he's 
referred to or, or talked about from his life. You'll see a demonstration of his, I guess, curmudgeonness. Don't call him a curmudgeon. He yelled at me for saying that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uncreative because everyone calls him that. But everyone calls you that because you are. <laughs> I have to ask Jacob, are the interviews that happened here in this film where they're talking to him, are those really as improvisational as they come across? Or was this scripted or pre-interview related stuff because when they cut to him it really does feel like they're just having a conversation with them that they've inserted in the middle of a narrative i'm guessing it's pretty much improvisational because at least in the commentary harvey just he doesn't talk a lot like someone will ask him a question and be like oh i don't know i don't know whatever and he even says at one point during the film they're like did you read the script he's like eh, i glanced through it so I, i'm guessing this wasn't written? It isn't. They're from documentaries. This is the first narrative film these filmmakers have ever tackled. And so they were bringing a lot from the documentary form to this story. What's interesting, though, is when you get to these documentary sections, it becomes very artificial. They kind of flip the script. When it's an artificial movie, they're actually in Cleveland. This isn't getting shot in Toronto, which is supposed to be Cleveland. They're, they're actually in Cleveland. They're at a lot of the locations where Harvey spent his life. But when they go to the documentary part, they wanted it to feel like comic panels. So it, you got those, it's all white and all the pieces are set pieces. Like they have a bookshelf that's obviously been staged to be sitting there and, and so they wanted to flip that that all white set was just a trademark of the time though right i mean i think five feet away they were shooting i'm a mac and i'm a pc ads <laughs> perhaps but they they did want those to look like artificial comic panels during the documentary segments and his comic american splendor is not colored at least the issues that i thumbed through it is a black and white comic yeah, I'm trying to think. I think they're all black and white. I don't think I've ever, besides the covers, I've never seen mm -hmm. a color story. I think that works. I mean, they didn't make the documentary Crumb, but Crumb had a similar approach where they would have interludes with the illustrator in his daily life, interacting with people. Then they would try to bring his work to life and we would just look at the art. It's important to state here, though, that Picard doesn't illustrate. He has never drawn, I mean, we see his poor attempt here when he gets the comic going. He can only do stick figures. Well, he claims he does better than stick figures. <laughs> That's Giamatti doing the stick figures. Okay, alright. But no, he is not an artist. And yet, I associate him most prominently with Robert Crumb. I didn't know anybody else had drawn him. I mean, honestly, I thought American Splendor was a Crumb comic. I didn't really know <laughs> about Picard until this movie. That is the most famous artist he's probably gotten, but a lot of the artists he's had do his comics are more underground artists more, you know, they're not superhero comic book artists. And Crumb has such a distinctive style. Like, once you see that, yeah, that's what you're going to think of. Yeah, it's the comics that I've looked at. It's, again, he's the name that I would recognize. I don't know that many underground comic book artists, but he's a major player in my mind. And he's a character in this movie. I like that. I, the guy doesn't really look or sound like him to my mind, but I'm glad that they throw in this scene here early on in a backyard junk sale where they're both, you know, picking over jazz records. That seems like a perfect place for these two characters to meet. Which isn't how they really met, Harvey makes known in the commentary. But yeah, it's a nice shortcut to how they met. You get that they're both into jazz and they're into their old stuff. Yeah, and I like how they get here. You know, I didn't remember. It's been several years since I've seen this. I think the last time I saw it 
was four years ago, Jacob, when you said, hey, I'm going to put this in the book. And I'd forgotten that it starts before he's a cartoonist and before he knows Crumb. They start really with him losing his voice at the same time that his second wife is leaving him. And so you start at this really tragic moment. But when he comes home after seeing the doctor and you see his house, I noticed first thing, my God, there's a shit ton of record albums there. Yeah, he was a big jazz collector. It sounds like he was just a collector in general, that it was comic books and then it was records. Yeah, in the interview I did, he did say, like, I'm like, tell me how to get into jazz. He's like, well, I'll tell you what I do. I start at the very beginning and I just start working my way up from there. And it might take 10 years for me to research something. So you can see that in his house. Like, here is every record from, like, 1920 to 1975 when this is taking place in that apartment. You see, when he says that he collected comics until he was 15, and then he collects records, and he talks about going to the junk sales and things, well, he's forming a bond with me specifically as a viewer. And then when you mention that he starts at the beginning of something and goes through it, and it may take 20 years, (laughs) now playing anybody? (laughs) so i'm really clicking with this character from the very early scenes i mean seeing him as his wife leaves him he has no voice but's trying to beg her to stay you've created an instant sympathy because Stuart, you asked how are you about these movies you gotta make the characters sympathetic and enjoyable and they've done both here through giamatti's performance in the script and yet I do feel like not everyone is going to find this character warm and fuzzy. Not everyone is going to instantly No, that's not think, a strong suit. <laughs> yeah, that this is a sympathetic character. I mean, he is really abrasive. And once he does get his voice back, you may wish it gone again because he is, yeah, he complains a lot. He seems like someone that is irritated by life and fixates on the failings of life. I think Joyce even points out later that she can think of happy memories that he turns into negative memories because that's that's kind of what he does. He's a negative person and not everyone's going to find that charming, but I do feel like that makes a good comedic character like Woody Allen, you know, someone that can just only see the negative in life. Even if you don't share that philosophy, you can find a person like that funny. What really gets me on his side, you do this flashback to 1962 when he first meets Crumb and they're hanging out in his apartment, listening to records, Crumb's sketching him, and then you have Crumb fade away. He he goes off to San Francisco and becomes the big hippie alt-comic icon that he became, and you get that moment where it's just Picard, he like kind of looks up from his books while laying on the couch, and Crumb is gone, and you just the look on Giamatti's face, like... I get that that's a moment like he was with this guy who's going to go on to be this this huge success in the art world. And he's stuck as a file clerk. Yeah. And I again, the writing is so good because what they're telling you here in shorthand, but it's good shorthand, is that he doesn't have his voice quite literally, but also just as someone that is trying to make a statement in the world that, you know, he's afraid that he's got cancer, that, you know, it's throat cancer and he won't be able to speak again. And so it's this fear of death and this fear of not being able to accomplish anything in life that will again continuously propel him to step out of his comfort zone and to do things bigger than he might normally aspire to do. And when I interviewed him, one of the things he said that stuck with me is like, because I asked him, like, oh, come on, aren't you just popular because you got Robert Crumb, you're lucky enough to meet him. And he's like, I was determined to do something in life, to make my mark. 
So yeah, it's lucky that I got Crumb, but I wanted to do something. I was striving for that. And I, I think they use great shorthand when he's filing a bunch of stuff and it falls down. And he opens up that file and born in Cleveland, died in Cleveland. It, it's the year that it is 1975 at this point, And that's when he goes and makes his first attempt to try to write a comic. Yeah, a hilarious comic about you know, standing in a grocery store line and the lady in front of him in the shorter line is kvetching about coupons and what have you know, something we've all done or experienced and nothing spectacular, nothing that we couldn't have experienced ourselves. But the idea of being able to put it down into a comic book form is what is revolutionary. And he gets that voice back, quite literally. Yes, when Crumb offers to draw the comics. Yes. To put this into context, what was so interesting about his work, what was so revolutionary, was you had superhero comics at the time. And he found them as a teenager. They just got too formulaic, and he knew where they were going. And so he stopped reading them. And then you had comics with an X at the end. And that was Robert Crumb and Zap and all the hippie stuff. And, and that they were all psychedelic. He wanted to do something just about normal life. Not about crazy hippies. Not about crazy superheroes. Just a regular person just working a dead-end job. He was the first to do that. Now, there's a lot of people that do that today. Like that That's a whole genre in and of itself, the autobiographical comic. But when he did that, that was a whole new thing. I recognize that, which, I'll, full disclosure, I didn't totally want to read every issue of American Splendor. I thumbed through it, and after a while, I'm like, ah, you know, I've had my fill. I get the vibe, just as I wouldn't read giant compendiums of peanuts. You know, charming in short doses, Maybe wouldn't want to consume it all in one sitting, but I do feel like they are quirky characters that the people he surrounded himself with are just as weird and wonderful as he is, uh, starting with Toby. Who ended up getting like somewhat of a, a career out of being this comic character. Yeah, Toby Radoff, who has some form of autism, he, he's able to drive, he's able to hold a job down, but quite obviously has some quirks. I actually knew him from those MTV ads he did. MTV Spring Break? <laughs> yeah, I knew him. I'd never heard of Harvey Pekar. But when I'm watching this, I'm taken back. I'm like, oh my God, I was glued to MTV during those years. And I saw that guy and I laughed and laughed when I was like 10 and 11 years old. The actor playing him, Judah Freelander. <laughs> yeah, doesn't look like him at all. He is unrecognizable. You take off that baseball cap and take away his curly hair that he's known for. He really gives an honest performance here. He's so close to the real Toby when we see him. It's eerie. Well, here's the trick that they pull, is they start with him first before we see the real Toby. I'm thinking, oh, this guy's going too big. This is, I'm a nerd here. I talk like this. I'm like, nobody talks like this. I don't believe this movie. And then they cut, they step out of the movie, the characters wander over to the craft services table, and there's Toby with his jelly bellies, and he is exactly what yes. the actor was doing. And that's that's the mind blow. You then now trust this movie to tell you the truth. And one of my favorite moments is Paul Giamatti and the actor who plays Toby. They're like sitting in the background while Toby and Harvey are talking about Jelly Bellies. Paul Giamatti's like cracking up. He cannot keep a straight face. He's like, as Toby's talking about just the flavors of Jelly Bellies. It is one of my favorite little moments in this film. I need to watch it again now just to watch Paul Giamatti in the background. I did not notice that. I was just so engrossed with Toby. 
Well, yeah, Toby explaining the different flavors of Jelly Belly <laughs> and how you can tell which red ones are cinnamon and which ones are watermelon or whatever they are. Yeah, I agree. He in of himself steals a spotlight. But yeah, there's a lot going on in the background here. And yeah, he, he almost could get his own spinoff, right? It's not enough just that he loves Revenge of the Nerds and goes on some 255-mile road trip to see it. Again, he's already seen the movie. But this is his personal manifesto that Revenge of the Nerds is his I have a dream Martin Luther King speech. I love it. Well, he kind of did get a spinoff. He got a couple of them. He starred in a couple of trauma films. Like his whole thing is, I'm a genuine nerd. Yeah, he is. And he starred in a couple trauma films, Killer Nerd and Bride of Killer Nerd. (laughs) I don't know those films. They might have come later. I don't think they're available anymore. (laughs) Neither one was directed by James Gunn, I take it? I'm guessing not. (laughs) But if you wanted to cast a nerd, there would be no better than this. He is the iconic nerd. He is better than all the Hollywood ripoffs that I love it when Paul Giamatti's Harvey Picar, whatever you want to say, whenever this incarnation of his friend gets to see Revenge of the Nerds, he's like, oh, it's Hollywood crap. I can't believe you fall for this. But for his friend, it is a spiritual journey. And I think that is the difference between them, is that there is something spiritual about Toby. He goes to church. He prays. He Yeah, he's a big Catholic. Yeah, he has a side to him. There's, there's something just as unique as Harvey, but individual and sweet, too. And he, Yeah, he is the anti-Harvey. Like, when Harvey goes off on him for liking Revenge of the Nerds, and I just love that monologue, like, they're not real nerds. They didn't have to send in box tops to get their computers like you, which is a true story. You got to pay $50 <laughs> plus box tops to get it from a local grocery store in Cleveland. Wow. But I, I love, like, Toby, nothing gets him down. Like, he's so the opposite of Harvey. He just, like, brushes it off. He doesn't get down when Harvey doesn't like Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, I got... I actually... The only time I think I turn against Picar in this whole film is when he's, like, berating Toby for Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) You're a big Revenge of the Nerds fan. (laughs) What do you have against this movie? He's like, they're not real nerds. They have college. They're gonna go out and get jobs and not be nerds. I'm like... (laughs) Were they nerds by, like, nerds for... Were they still nerds? They were. It's a class issue with Harvey. And I get his point, is that on some level, yeah, all of those guys were destined for some kind of success. There are some people, the people that Picar writes about and talks about, are the people that will never have that kind of success. So he kind of resents anyone that's going to get rich, even if they are rich nerds. Well, and he does have a chip on his shoulder when it comes to education. You could call it a class thing, but they reference that he went to college. He's going to meet an old classmate, Alice Quinn, at one point, who he changed her name and like eight different women have come up to Joyce saying, I know I Alice Quinn was based on me. <laughs> but <laughs> Everyone in his English lit class. Yeah, he tried to go to college. He couldn't pass a math class. And so he ended up dropping out. But he's a self-educated man. The dude read a lot. He's passed now, but he read a ton of stuff, was well-known at the library. He claims that second wife that we see leaving him when she gets her PhD, he's like, oh, I wrote all her stuff. He's like, she didn't know anything about American history. I did it all for her. So he <laughs> he has that like unsung genius like attitude, like I know stuff, but I just I don't have the, the money or the fame or whatever for people to recognize it. And that's his frustration. That is part of it for sure. And with that character, the movie moves beyond the idea of success and into, I think, what are Picard's real issues, which are loneliness. The fact that, yeah, he can't keep someone to be with him at this point in his life. He has some fame. He is writing about jazz and Alice even says, hey, you're famous. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. But it doesn't feel 
like anything to him because he goes home and eats alone, listens to jazz alone, does everything alone. So he's a podcaster. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not willing to get that personal uh, on this on this show. But yeah, I do feel like there's certain introverted careers and being a reviewer, a critiquer of some kind would be one of them where you make more enemies than friends and you might have very educated opinions, but you spend a lot of meals alone. And so the second act of this movie is about looking at that problem. Yeah, and that's where... Joyce is going to be introduced, his future wife. She's working at a comic book store in Delaware. I think they make it sound like she's with that guy. She says my partner at one point. They were not dating. She didn't, like, cheat on this guy. But Business partner is the way I took it. Yes, that is what that is what it is meant. Yeah, I had a business I owned with a friend of mine, and we described each other as our partner. And, you know, <laughs> it, it gets very weird and confusing because people thought we were lovers, you know. The word has changed over time, I think, yeah. just as the word gay has. So, yes, I think it means something different to people now than it might have back then. But she didn't have any kind of chemistry with that guy. We get one scene in Delaware with her looking for an American Splendor comic, frustrated that her partner sold it out from under her. I didn't get the sense that there was any love there. And so it's the way that the actress plays it that makes me believe that she's not in a relationship when she reaches out to Picar and says... Hey, can you send me a copy of my American Splendor that got sold out from under me and starts their long distance relationship? I'm kind of glad they don't glamorize her. You know, she's just about as big a nerd as Toby. And I don't think that Picar's really into making the people in his life look good in his comics from what I'm gathering from this. No, Joyce, the real Joyce complains about that. And they bring it up in this movie that yeah, he's, I... he doesn't flatter anyone with his comics. And I like how they got this relationship started, that it started with those long phone calls and that she was a fan of the comic. I mean, she's his only groupie, I guess. <laughs> it looks like it. Yeah. And I do love like a lot of this could work as like little sketch vignettes that are funny. But even when they're expanding the story and getting into the bigger narrative, I do love like little moments where Harvey's trying to write a note and he just puts a piece of paper like on the mattress and of course the pencil goes through it. Doesn't learn anything from that, just grabs another piece of paper, does the same thing. It's, it's just these little character moments that really tells you who Harvey is. I like the idea that she is as screwed up, or maybe even more so than him, not only because it's realistic, but because we oftentimes have so many movies. I'm thinking of the Jack Nicholson movie, As Good As It Gets, for example, that was a big hit, where you have this horrible, horrible man that is so nasty and vile and everything, and a woman must be sacrificed. There must be this <laughs> kind-hearted woman who has no problems, who must be sacrificed to the beast so that he can become better by her being a attached to him in some romantic way. It doesn't feel like a partnership. It feels like, yeah, she laid down on an altar and someone stuck a dagger into her and Jack Nicholson drank her blood. It, it, <laughs> this feels like a relationship. Entire sitcoms are based on that premise. I'm thinking of the King of Queens. You constantly have oh, yeah. <laughs> the screwed up men child and the 
women who come and fix them. And and the women are always prettier and seem to have no real problems other than they think so little of themselves that this is the best they, <laughs> they can do. They stay with those men. <laughs> yes, yeah. I agree. But here, I believe these two belong to each other. And I love, you know, just the way it kicks off with this. It starts with writing letters back and forth. And we watch through montage how it becomes, turns into the phone conversation to when they finally meet. It's like, okay, first date, we're getting married. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, they jumped right into it. Like, they did not take long. And I, I think that goes with this theme that Harvey's just a lonely guy. And, and Joyce seems pretty lonely here, too. Like, they're two people that were meant for each other, I guess. I, I mean, the thing that I love is when she's waiting at that train station, this really sells another theme of this movie. Like, who is Harvey B. Carr? Like, when you turn yourself into a comic and you have a bunch of different artists doing it and drawing you different ways, she's like, I don't know what you're going to look like. Sometimes you're cute. Sometimes you're smelly. Those are motion lines. Brando or a hairy ape. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just, I love his line in the movie. He tends to get married fast because he'll take any woman that will have him. But this time he really (laughs) met his match. I think that's very telling of how his third marriage went and that he would agree to get married on that first weekend together. And he stayed with her until he passed away. So I guess this was the one. Yeah, it it worked out for him. Maybe part of the reason why he was so hard on Revenge of the Nerds, I think that the character does admit to this, is that he had been married for a couple weeks at this point and realized that rushing into the marriage uh, wasn't a great thing. She, of course, liked Revenge of the Nerds, was siding with Toby. He was thinking about how, basically, I married a woman who now sleeps until 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, won't get a job, spends her time diagnosing everyone's (laughs) other psychological problems and by calling herself clinically depressed it basically just means she can be a stay-at-home loaf and slacker and just not do anything and so you have someone that's going to the VA doing a menial job working so that she can do nothing and I do feel that's brought on like when they first meet the first thing he says and they didn't say if this was true or not but he walks up to her at the train station is like I had a vasectomy. Can't have any kids. And and you see that she ends up wanting kids. Like that becomes yes. a thing. And I feel like that's what leads to her depression is she yeah, they jumped to this marriage knowing she couldn't have kids and now she's kind of regretting that. Yeah, I love that development. You see it play out again and again. And in fact, she spends some time away from him, a critical time where he has a health scare because she is supposedly helping children in Israel or something at some strange conference. She hasn't had a job all her life and all of a sudden now she's needed to save lives in Israel. It's it's ridiculous, but no more ridiculous, I suppose, than anyone else in this screwed up little world. Yeah, I mean, the way that they introduced that vasectomy line, I don't know that I buy it as far as reality, but it certainly works dramatically for this, that yeah, her life feels empty because it doesn't have a child. And that's going to be her arc here, is that she starts off, she won't even get off the sofa at all, even to answer calls from David Letterman's people. And by the end of this movie, they're going to find a foster child to raise together, and that will stop her crazy missionary work where she's just trying to fill this hole in her life that Harvey can't do. And plus, I mean, they're two clinically depressed people. They talk about this, about how living with each other is very difficult. They show her living in bed and never getting up, but they also have her talking about him and how he can't be happy and he'll go through bouts of depression. And I'm not going to say that the her whole thing going off to Israel is about 
having surrogate children. I, I think it does play that way in the movie, but she is still very politically active. And you see that, like, when they go to Letterman, she tries to change the channel by Picard's <laughs> getting interviewed because she wants to find out about the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah, I, I love the fact that, yeah, she is not impressed by celebrity. And Picard says he's not, but I think but that But you he, see that. He gets that smile when he's on that moving walkway as they're coming back from that first Letterman show. It's very telling. He likes his audience. He might not want to admit it, but he likes having attention. It's what he's always craved in his life, is for people to respect him and to acknowledge him. And what bigger audience can you have than going on national television at that time and being David Letterman's guest or butt of his joke? He knows that. He's smart, but he's still, yeah, seduced by it. But she... Yeah, I love the fact that she wanted to change the channel in the green room. I love the fact that she never wants to mingle with those types. Another scene I love early on in their courtship, when this thing is first kicking off, American Splendor is optioned as a play in L.A. Yes. And we get to go see other people playing Picard and Joy. So we have Paul Giamatti and Hope Davis playing the characters, looking at themselves on stage being played by... Molly Shannon from SNL and Donald Logue from Ghost yeah. Rider and Blade. Is that Donald Logue? Yeah. It is. Yeah, in thinner <laughs> times. Yes. And it's funny to think that, oh, yeah, that's the Hollywood version of the independent movie version of the real version <laughs> that we all get to see in this movie. It makes this really fun. Yeah, and I do love that, like, we see their first kiss and Joyce is like this hypochondriac, so she's got to run to the bathroom to throw up. And, like, in this play, they're full on making out for, like, a couple of minutes before she gets sick. And then yeah. they go into this cheesy, like, acoustic American Splendor theme song. Yeah, it was a very Hollywood play. It's what Rob Schneider could have done with the property. Yes, it might be the Rob Schneider version we all never get. Again, that's the fun of watching the movie done in this way. To step out and to be able to see different versions of Picar. It's what he's always done in his comics. It's what they're doing here in the movie. It's really smart. It's really fun. You know, the Letterman stuff, that was the other thing I knew about Harvey Picar coming in. I don't even know where I got this knowledge, but somewhere through osmosis, I knew that he was on Letterman quite regularly and got into a huge feud over the GE thing. So I was honestly surprised. They have real David Letterman footage here, not of the blow-up episode, but of the rest of the episodes where he made appearances. The director said they were very lucky. Letterman rarely licensed out footage, but they were able to get this, except for the GE part where Harvey confronts Letterman about NBC being owned by GE and he's wearing that shirt on strike. Like that aired once and that is like locked up. There is someone videotaped it and put it on YouTube. If you look it up on YouTube, it's like Harvey P. Carr, David Letterman, I believe 73187. And you could you could see that. It's like 10 minutes and it gets very uncomfortable. I really want to see that. I got to go see that. I really like the way they do it, though, because the first time, you know, he's in the green room waiting to go on air. He walks out of the room and then, uh, yeah, we have Joyce turning to the TV that's always in a green room. And we see the actual broadcast with the real David Letterman, the real Harvey P. Carr. It's fun. You see how good Giamatti is at playing him. You see the real Picard enjoying celebrity. You see David Letterman in his prime. All of that's very good. But yeah, when we finally get to the other one, they use actors. And I think dramatically that works. I think we want to see the Giamatti version lose his temper because, yeah, she has gone off. She has left him. I mean, she hasn't left and left him, but she's off in Israel. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, she is. She might be. I mean, I get the sense that she. She stayed long than she was supposed to. 
Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if she called him up and said, you know what, I've just decided that this is where I need to be and bye. I mean, there was nothing really to hold her to Cleveland or to him beyond their dysfunctional relationship, which hadn't been going well. And then, yes, he had had a medical scare in the middle of this, too. Yeah, he as soon as she leaves, he finds out he has a lump and like a man doesn't do anything about it. He's going to wait till she gets back. Yeah. That was very relatable in that way, and I don't know if they messed with the timing at all, but just dramatically, by the fact that this is really the climax of the movie, that he's going to contract cancer, I feel like having all of these things collide in this way, her disappearing, him melting down on Letterman, him finding out about the lump, that really does give this movie a structure that the comic never really does have. Jacob, do you know if... The cancer thing was timed like that before the Letterman thing, because I find it very convenient that it really excuses Picar's behavior on that Letterman episode because you watch it. And the fake David Letterman says, is everything all right at home, Harvey? And we know it's not. His wife is gone. He's got this. Was that really so much stress that he wanted to take it out on Letterman like that? I think they fudged that a little bit. Our cancer year takes place during 1990. That... Letterman feature was in 87. So who who knows, though? He might have waited three years to get that lump checked. Like, I wouldn't be surprised with Harvey if he just put it off for a while. But here they do infer that that lump, his wife being missing, that's what put him in this mood. But he he's politically active, too. Like, he was a big critic uh, of how Israel had treated Palestinians. That was one of his big causes. So he was always very political as well and and didn't shy away from that kind of stuff. I I think the way at least they structured in the movie, it's like, oh, Joyce is off doing all this important work in Israel. And I'm just kind of this goof off that Letterman uses to get laughs. I want to be taken just as seriously. Yeah, he specifically doesn't want the show to be funny. Letterman's like, this is a comedy show. He goes, not tonight. Yeah, the reason I actually don't care for them not showing that original footage, Stuart, though. Giamatti is doing a transformative performance. I mean, I know Giamatti from so many roles, but I lose him in Harvey Picar here, even with the real Picar walking around sometimes. But this fake David Letterman, they just got some guy. That's bad. And even he, even yeah. in silhouetted shadow, you can tell it's not Letterman. No, it's so distracting that that is such a bad not Letterman. And that the voice is a different person still. And it's like, that is the only time that I will fault the filmmaking of this film is that I just think that scene and the fact they're trying to film it from behind, like it's a backstage view, just so they don't have to show us the fake Letterman. It's really distracting. I don't know if it's that distracting, but I think you get distracted when, yeah, when something that you know very well doesn't look the way that it should. And I agree, this Letterman actor doesn't look that way, but we're not focused on Letterman. We're focused on Giamatti, and we've accepted that he's Picar at this point. I, I think it was the right choice, but yeah, I do want to see that footage too. I'd like to see the real Picar lose it on late night show. Why not? That would be fun. But this brings us to our climax, and it's where it takes a dramatic turn. The movie began with him thinking he had cancer and then finding his voice to write comics. We see a similar thing because Joyce has returned. Because Joyce has returned, he goes to the doctor and gets diagnosed. Because Joyce has returned, she encourages him to turn it into a story, to not just accept that he's going to die, but to actually take every painful little moment and put it down in the comic book panel. 
And that was very true to what they did. Joyce wanted to take his mind. Because Harvey, he's a hypochondriac too. Like everything is the end of the world to him. And so for him to find out he had cancer was like devastating. So she wanted to find some way to take his mind off. So she came up with this idea about documenting the whole thing in a comic. Now the thing they did fudge is we meet Frank, who's going to be the artist for this comic. And they use the actual artist's name and he has his daughter that they'll end up adopting. That is not where the daughter came from. That came from a different artist. They've never wanted to reveal who her actual parents are. So they did fudge that here. Yeah, but that's good choices. I mean, I I don't blame movies that change the facts. I don't think real life is interesting that we would want to always know exactly how it happens. I want a storyteller to tell me a good story. I love the fact that she brings an illustrator in to help tell Harvey's story. And he comes with a daughter who sort of fulfills what Joyce needs. That we realize that this is not just about giving Harvey what he needs in this year. It's about giving Joyce that maternal impulse that she can act on finally. And it's really telling when Harvey, he comes home because he left his keys and he's knocking on the door. He's hearing music play. Some random guy answers. But you see Joyce in the background. She's dancing with Danielle. And and yeah, that sells it. Like, this is what Joyce needs. She needs this kid in her life. And the first time I saw that movie and this last time, when he opens that door and there's music playing, Joyce is dancing, (laughs) and this guy answers, I thought for sure Harvey was going to think she's having an affair. But that's not ever where it goes. Yeah, that would be the uh, reaction most of us would have. But yeah, Harvey knows this guy, and that's that's just clearly not what's happening when you look at Joyce. That's just not what she's capable of doing. Now, they do, when he does have cancer, though. I mean, they, they really just film panels of the comic. We criticized Zack Snyder for more or less doing that with Watchmen, but they literally do that here. Like, they really just have music playing and tell his story about dealing with cancer through panels of the actual graphic novel. Well, fighting cancer is not a great cinematic thing. I mean, I can't think of too many movies, disease movies, where you watch people waste away that are in and of itself dramatically interesting. You have to create something in the background. So to do it in montage as a climax, I think is the right choice. What I needed to know was, well, you know, whether you survive cancer or not feels like a crapshoot. There's no, there's nothing really that Harvey can do other than follow the advice of those around him how are they going to to show this as a dramatic moment? I love the way they handle it by having Picar have a moment. Uh, it, it's a monologue, really, where he drifts into his comic and talks about finding other Harvey Picars in the phone book, and that really gets him off riffing on, is he special? Is he unique? What does his life mean? And I think that that choice and that search is kind of what brings him back and allows him to continue to be the artist. I mean... Obviously, that wouldn't have saved someone that has cancer, but I just, dramatically speaking, I think that works for telling his recovery. Yeah, they put it in the right place. Like, that is one of the first comics I think he ever did. It's one of the first ones I ever read was where he's just, it's Robert Crumb drawing it, so it looks great, but it's just Harvey, like, staring at you, talking about his name, telling the story, and the writers, directors knew they wanted to do this particular comic story. They just had to find the right place, and they find the best place for it as this moment when he's been dealing with cancer to really discover who am I, you know, he he says at one point, if I die, will my character just keep going or will it fade away? Like, who am I? And Giamatti gives a great monologue. This is all one shot. I think they said that he did four or five takes and it's just a monologue that he gives walking around this room and they animate stuff. But yeah, it's, it's the right thing at the right moment. Yeah, it's perfectly timed because he talks about the fact that 
somebody's consoling him thinking his father died because the father of another Harvey Picar died and how unusual a name it is. I think it works there because it's about death and the meaninglessness of life as he's facing death. You know, I think that's why this works. Whereas the cancer thing itself is pretty much a montage and, you know, it's going to end with him just getting a phone call and all is well. <laughs> this is my favorite scene in the movie because it's everyone doing their best from Giamatti to the directors finding this moment. And it sounds like what you're saying, Jacob, is that if I were to read this comic, that this is the writing of Picar. So we're seeing Picar work maybe at his best as well. Yeah, like like I said, it's one of his early things. I think when he's just on fire and just writing and like it was all fresh and new. But this putting it after the cancer bout is, is the best place for it. And one of the things the directors did, it, it's very subtle. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but for everything before the cancer goes away, they had a brown filter on everything. The, all the shots looked dirty. They removed that. They wanted it to to have this subliminal brightness to it after the cancer scare. They want a happy ending. He doesn't want to call it a happy ending, but they know that they owe us this. You can't have a story about a curmudgeon that gets cancer and dies, or gets cancer and lives, but doesn't feel like his life is worth anything. You need to believe that there was an arc, a journey here. And even if American Splendor doesn't have arcs, American Splendor, the movie, needs to have one. It does. I like the way this movie wraps up. And I didn't notice the filter. I noticed when I was trying to pay attention to how the film looked that it had this dingy brown look. I thought that was actually going for atmosphere, going for his view, kind of bringing a 70s feel to it also, given that so much of this took place in the 70s and early 80s. I didn't notice until when you said it, it clicked because I'm replaying it in my head that, yeah, those last scenes with the little girl on the ice skate rink and things are really bright and vibrant. And Stuart, you're saying there's an arc here. Like, yeah, they've adopted Danielle. We see Harvey taking her to the school bus to drop her off. I, I do feel like, though, this ending is still very Picar. Like, sure. It's like, I, I made it to retirement. And with a little luck, you'll have a window of good health between retiring and dying. Like, that—that that is your Picar happy ending. Yeah, I mean, he starts the way the... The movie begins with him walking alone on the streets of Cleveland. But yes, they look different. They're brighter. And clearly things have happened in his life that even a cynic like him must admit things are better for him now. The child, the retirement. It was nice to see. Uh, that's an actual retirement, too. That's not a recreation. They actually caught him at a moment in his life where he was stepping away from the job. Yeah, when they're filming this, he's getting ready to retire. And that's his actual retirement party and you'll know like they don't have Paul Giamatti there yeah. like it's real Harvey P. Carr it's the real Toby's there some other workers like yeah th this is his retirement yeah that's you couldn't have written a better ending for this story so they got really lucky as documentarians to be making this movie at that moment I'm such a fucking cynic, though. I've seen too much reality TV and making of. I'm picturing how that camera crew was and how they're, like, telling the person, all right, cut the cake. We want to get a shot of this cake getting cut and everything. As <laughs> fortuitous as it is, I can't ever look beyond the artificial reality that filmmakers make in these moments. Oh, yeah, it's manipulated. Don't don't get me wrong. I, yes, but they were they didn't contrive it. It actually happened. They were just blessed that it fell into their lap and they were there to have the I can't imagine how you'd end this movie without knowing that. Yeah, Picard retired. And 
It makes me wonder, is there more American Splendor after 2003? Like I said, DC through Vertigo actually published some American Splendor comics. I'm going to say if they did a sequel, it'd be very depressing. Harvey Pekar actually dealt with cancer three times, twice more after what we see here when he passed away in... 2010 like i don't get caught up in celebrity deaths like when david bowie died that was like the sublime moment where it's like oh an alien just went back to his home planet like i felt something but harvey b car actually cried when i found out about his death it was just one of those people i looked up to like if this file clerk can do it maybe i could do it too you know so but when he died in 2010 they're like oh accidental overdose look this is a guy who has dealt with depression his whole life Joyce came to Comic-Con in 2011, the last Comic-Con I attended. I went and saw her speak, and she got pretty frank uh, about some things with Harvey and how he there were suicide attempts that he never wrote about. So I think the sequel would be very, very dark. Although DC did publish or republish old ones, did he continue to write up until his death? Yeah, he again, he didn't always write comics. As far as American Splendor, the stuff through Vertigo, A Day Late, A Dollar Short, I believe was the last American Splendor stuff he wrote. But he had some stuff come out after he was dead. Um, Harvey P. Carr's Cleveland, and there was a few other books that kind of summarized his life up that he had been working on. He did other things, though, like Studs Terkel's Working. If you've read that, he did a comic adaptation of that. So he he was always working uh, up until he died. Okay. Well, and probably the jazz reviews, too. But Yes. That seemed to be what he needed to do you know however bad things might have gone for him there's still some life in harvey if he's able to complain about something and so (laughs) that makes me feel good at least hey he called me up angry yeah exactly (laughs) so jacob stewart do you recommend american splendor jacob i think it's obvious i've kind of shown my cards like early early on in this show but look there's not many movies or, or works of art that I would consider transformative, where like I experienced them and they changed who I am, changed my ambitions, made me want to do something. Like there's maybe two or three records that I listened to that like blew my mind. I'm like, oh, this is the direction of my life. Or books that I read. And Harvey P. Carr, this film, like introduced me to his work. And once I read it, I'm like, oh, this is like, wow, I have a crappy job too. But maybe I could write and do stuff at night and, and maybe something will happen. And maybe that thing is this podcast. We've written a book because of this podcast. So that's Arnie gets chocolates from Australia from strangers because of this podcast. <laughs> so you, you, you can't discount that. And it's because of this film, because it was so well done. It didn't just take comedic moments and string them together, but it, it actually has an arc to it. And it tells a story about a regular guy. You know, ordinary life is pretty complex stuff. And, and they show him with that struggle, like, you got this mundane job, but he he does want that taste of fame. And his taste of fame was this rarely read comic book, but that brought something to his life. And, and just, it's so well written. It's arguably one of the best comic book adaptations because they took, you know, this comic book with all these different artists and they incorporate that. They have real Harvey. They have Giamatti Harvey. They have drawings of Harvey. Like, they really took the spirit of American Splendor and put it into the style of this movie. It's just not a style for style's sake, but there's substance behind it. And I think that's what makes this film so great and so recommendable. This is this is a very high, highest of recommends for me. Stuart. Boy, you know, this DC leg has been rough for me, but it's nice to end on a high note. I got to say, we're not going to do any more DC for a while, and I'm glad about that. 
But I'm also glad that we did cover American Splendor because, Jacob, you used the word underrated. I think I'm guilty of that. I saw this movie in theaters in 2003, walked out, thought, yeah, I enjoyed that. But I also felt like I had seen it. There had been other movies like Crumb, like Ghost World, where I had felt I'd spent time with a character like this and it didn't feel special. Coming back with some perspective, looking at comic book movies, looking at this comic book. I took some out from the library and and read them before I watched the movie. I really felt like I was in a headspace where I could see how well made this movie is. It really is an extraordinary piece of writing, and it really is an extraordinary piece of acting. And I think even if the idea of seeing a curmudgeon in Cleveland doesn't sound like your cup of tea. It's just so well made. I It's hard for me to imagine anyone that wouldn't be a little captivated by it. It's a very strong recommend. It's a very strong movie. I don't think there's any shock that it's three for three in Green Arrow territory. Because this was a biopic and of somebody that Jacob was so intimately familiar with, his life and then the interview... I don't know that we could really call out enough the filmmaking that went into this and that Paul Giamatti really just became the character. It's not a glamorous role. You know, it may be up Paul Giamatti's alley because he's a character actor through and through, but... He spends a lot of time scratching his hairy body. Yeah, he really does. And he it's not a glamorized role at all. And, I mean, it would be really jarring. Could you imagine... If it was, for example, Donald Logue and Olivia Wilde playing these roles, and then we see the real Harvey P. Carr and his wife, it would be like, oh, wait, what? And the fact that they just encompass their characters. And again, we talked a bit about Judah Freelander. I think we've given him the most shout outs for acting and just the way he becomes Toby there. And the editing style... The camera work, the way that, yeah, it cuts back and forth between all of these styles of comic and you get to see Paul Giamatti with thought bubbles above him. He becomes like a live action cartoon comic panel. It's just a really great piece of filmmaking. And it did. I mean, I can't pinpoint what was Jacob's influence through that interview and me listening to Comic Apocalypse and what was me watching this movie around the same time. But it did turn me onto different types of comics. I primarily read main comics from the big three publishers. You know, I read Walking Dead and I read superhero stuff and things like that. But because of this, I did pick up a compilation of American Splendor, the one that has Paul Giamatti on the cover. And then I also ended up reading other independent autobiographical books. And one that I'm going to recommend beyond American Splendor is called True Story, Swear to God, by Tom Beeland. And so, Jacob, you mentioned how this podcast led to us writing a book. You recommending American Splendor led me to contact Tom Beeland, who's now doing the art for our book. (laughs) So I thank you for opening up this world to me and showing me that comics can be a bit more than capes and spandex. The way this movie opens is perfect for how it kind of opened my eyes to a area of the comic book store that I just had previously ignored. And with that, we'll be shutting the cover on comic books, unless you're joining us on Friday, where I guess Men in Black counts as a comic book. It's uh, It started as a comic book, yeah. All right, so uh, I'm not sure who published it, but we are publishing our version of the movie this Friday as the kickoff to summer 2016 donation drive. 
Silver level, $10, gets you three men in black, one Will Smith Independence Day, and one Smithless Independence Day sequel. I'm not sure what it's called or how that will be, but five movies stretching from now until June. And for $25 or more gold, you'll get 11 bonus movie reviews, the five Stuart mentioned, plus six movies celebrating their 30th birthday this year. That's right. It's our middle-aged retrospective series. (laughs) Just like us. We we got a stretch for our themes now that we've done just about every franchise. Uh, This is what I want to do, though. I got to say, and I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this idea. There are a lot of things that become franchises, and then there are little movies that kind of die on the vine, but because you saw them at impressionable age, uh, they left a mark on you. And summer 1980, 1986 was a big summer for me. I watched a lot of movies, and there are a lot of them that, well, they never got sequels, but we're collecting them all in a retrospective we're calling Sci-Fi of Summer 1986, which is, I guess, let's run them down. Critters came out in April 86, and we're covering really all four, but mostly that first movie in the first podcast, and then it'll be... Invaders from Mars, Toby Hooper's big flop that was supposed to be the alien invasion movie of all alien invasion movies. Toby wishes we'd just leave him alone. (laughs) It hasn't gone well for him. Even when we're praising him, I feel like we're damning him. (laughs) Poltergeist. But uh, after that, we will have Space Camp. If you ever feared that you would wind up stranded in space with Kate Capshaw, this will be the most terrifying movie in the retrospective. <laughs> it would scare me. And then, well, it's not sci fi per se, but it is fantasy, and it is a movie that came out in summer '86, and it is one that I saw, and I think a lot of people have love for David Bowie in Jim Henson's Labyrinth. And Jennifer Connolly. Yeah, and Jennifer Connolly. <laughs> and then, because it came out in '86, and because it's highly requested, and because we never fail to answer a call for more John Carpenter on this show, or our book, Big Trouble in Little China. It will be the fifth installment of Gold Level, a movie that has yet to have a sequel, but might have. I understand Labyrinth might as well, but right now uh, they remain special little gems. And then we polish it off with a, a little horror movie that I remember seeing and loving about space worms called Night of the Creeps. Tom Atkins, he's got good news and bad news. He's going to thrill you. And then, of course, our platinum donation, $35 or more. You get all of that, plus Ghostbusters. Bum, bum, ba-da-dum, bum, bum. That's three movies now. We were always waiting for a new movie, and they've always talked about a new movie. And there will be a new movie this summer, and uh, we will review it and the two original. I'm sure we'll talk about the cartoons, too, but they're not their own podcast. If you're willing to go above and beyond, we have 14 shows to offer you each Friday from now through July. That's $2.50 a show if you get the whole kit and caboodle. That is the price of two iTunes songs per show. And our shows always go an hour or more, and iTunes songs are three to four minutes. I hope that you find it in your wallet and your hearts to support our show. And remember, we don't ask you to donate for these bonus shows. We're not selling these shows. We're asking you to donate for this show, American Splendor. And for last week's show, when we were doing The Spirit. And for next week's show, when we're doing Cujo. We need your support to do every show. 
and our way of saying thank you is these bonus shows. We hope that you're looking forward to going with us to space, to a labyrinth, to the afterlife with ghosts. But no matter what, we just hope you can think about donating to support this show. And if you donate just a bit over a dollar per week, you'd get all of the bonus shows from our spring retrospectives and then do it again in the fall. It comes to about 70 bucks a year, a little over a dollar a week for less than the price of a cup of coffee, a hell of a lot less than a latte at Starbucks. You can support Now Playing and we thank you for your support. Yep, I'm looking forward to joining all that can join us on Friday for Men in Black. And then next week, by popular demand, we are finally getting back to Stephen King and Cujo. And join me over at Books and Nachos. I'm not quite at Cujo yet, but I am catching up on King after a year where I was busy with our own book instead of with Stephen King's books. But I'm catching up so that we can dig into King even more and sync those shows back up in the fall. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me because sure, we'll lose the war eventually, but the goal is just to win a few skirmishes along the way. truth. My guy writes about himself in a comic book. Or am I just, am I just a character in that book? What are you talking about? What are you, what are you saying? If I die, will that character keep going? Or will he just fade away? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Look, this uh, plebeian lifestyle just isn't working for me anymore. I gotta get out of here before I kill myself. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. You go to the movies and daydream, but this ain't reality. It's Hollywood bullshit, Cole. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss the DC movies with other listeners. Look, you know, I was going to clean up, but why should I give you any false notions? And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. It's the guys who are doing superhero stuff. They're really limited, because they got to try to appeal to kids. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. These are really good. Thanks, Yeah, this is great stuff. I dig it. <laughs> Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Yeah, I listen. I fall asleep on people, too, but I listen some. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. But so what? It's not like he makes a living at it like Bob Crumb. He can't go and quit his day job or nothing. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Amy, but look, just come out here and I will try to be anyone that you want me to be, okay? Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. 
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Wow, man! You'd really do that for me, man? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. What the hell are you doing anyway? Merchandising. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Okay, so now you got four pigs. You ought to be able to patch one together from there. <laughs> right? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Do you feel weird saying this stuff? No, I don't feel weird saying it. I don't know how long my voice is going to hold up, but... Now Playing is not affiliated with DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. You've turned yourself into a comic hero. <laughs> The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Why does everything in my life have to be such a complicated disaster? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Okay, I'm gonna hustle before the vibe in here gets any worse. Toby Radloff, the genuine spring break party nerd, signing off. <laughs> Harvey Beekar actually cried when I found out about his death. It, it was just one of those people I looked up to. Like, if Is this file clerk can do it, maybe I, I can there, do it too. I am there, but Jacob cut out. You know, okay, so, Jacob cut but out. But when yeah. he died in 2010, Jacob, if you can like, hear oh, us, we can hear overdose. you. Look. This is a guy who has dealt the alien went back with to his depression planet, his whole life. Yep. Joyce came to Aww. Comic-Con in 2011, the last Comic-Con I attended. I went and saw her speak. And she was frank about some stuff, but Ground it control could have been a possible suicide. Maybe not. Maybe it wasn't accidental. And he's gone. Gone. Yeah. It's so close to the end. <laughs> We're asking you to donate... For this show, American Splendor, and for last week's show, when we were doing The Spirit, and for next week's show, when we're doing what? whatever it is we're doing, I can't remember. Stephen King! <laughs> when we're doing Stephen King, yes. Ha, ha, ha!